This week on the Backtable Podcast. When I started in urology, upper tract reconstruction was something that people really didn't want to do. And it was because all those problems we've talked about where it was hard to localize the stricture, you weren't sure what to do. The options were, you know, it wasn't like a reconstructive ladder. You could have done a, a UU or an auto transplant. There wasn't anything in between. And I think I would counsel the listener that we really have many, many options for reconstruction of the ureter. And this isn't something where a patient gets a stent and has a change every, you know, three months, six months for the rest of their lives. We could do a two hour outpatient operation and cure the problem. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Our next partner has a product I literally use every day. I've started taking AG1 because my friend Aaron Fritz actually kind of turned me on to it. And for me, I've always kind of intermittently fasted, and I like the idea of getting nutrition in without the calories that kind of come along with it that, you know, in my personal case, sometimes make me feel a bit groggy. My trainer turned me on to it. I, you know, I feel like I get better sleep, better workout recoveries from it. And yeah, like, and when we were in New Orleans for AUA, those travel packs really came in handy, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Sometimes I'll kind of, I generally do it first thing in the morning, but uh, depending on what the evening's looking like, I'll uh, maybe slide one in late night as well. <laughs> You know, the other great thing about it, because I don't really like taking vitamins and I know a lot of people take different kinds of like multivitamins and stuff like that. But like you said, like you, you drink it first thing in the morning with some water, you know, you're getting a good 12 ounces of water to start the day out and you know, you're getting all those vitamins. And so it's nice because it's all in one and you don't, you're not popping pills. You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. I, uh, I hear you hundred percent. I, I'm not ready for my kind of Sunday through Saturday pill box as it stands. <laughs> To make it easy, Athletic Grains is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel pack with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash backtable euro. Again, that's athleticgreens.com backslash backtable euro to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Now, back to the show. This is Aditya Bagrodi as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Li Zhao from NYU Department of Urology, where he's the Director of Reconstructive Surgery and Co-Director of the Gender Affirming Care Program. Lee, it's late in the afternoon over there. How are you doing out east? Excellent. Happy to be here. Well, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you, Lee. You know, Lee and I spent a year overlapping during his fellowship, my residency at UT Southwestern Medical Center. It was a wonderful time. You know, it was pretty evident to me that Lee was going to be a mover and the shaker in the field. And uh, I think by all metrics, that's kind of panned out. So, you know, Lee, let's, uh, let's just jump on into it. And there's so many aspects of your practice that I think we could talk about, but I'm, I'm going to try to keep it somewhat focused today. And we'll, we'll maybe focus on upper tract reconstruction. And probably even just to keep it a little bit more focused, I feel like we could have a whole talk on pyeloplasty. Perhaps we'll leave pyeloplasty out of it. Does that sound okay? Sure. Okay, so, so you've clearly done a good job establishing yourself as a reconstructive urologist in a competitive market. 
And how are most of these patients coming your way? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think about half the patients are referred from kind of other, I would say fairly subspecialized uh, urologists because the problem is, is one of upper track reconstruction that someone may feel like they won't be able to handle. So patients will often come from somebody who specializes maybe in urologic oncology and they have, for example, a stricture after a neobladder or they've had, you know, radiation throughout the body and they, they've had a bilateral panureteral strictures. So oftentimes it's referred that way. The other half are often self-referred where patients have read articles I've written and, you know, come bearing those articles thinking that they would be someone who that would be a candidate for some of the operations that we've described here at NYU. Okay. And so it's basic, you know, HNP 101, what are the kind of critical elements that you're trying to get in when you see a new patient that you're intaking? Sure. For upper tract reconstruction, you know, I think the primary thing I ask is if it's a kidney that's obstructed, is this a kidney that is worth saving? And so, you know, does it have function? So typically that's a you know, if they've had a history of renal scan or if they've had a nephrostomy tube, if the nephrostomy tube was ever removed, what happened? Does it make urine, for example? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, kind of for me, it's definitely going to be a history of stones. Have they had stents before? Is a stent currently in place? Radiation, as you mentioned, cancer. I think the abdominal surgical history is also quite important. You know, kind of things along those lines. Are there kind of critical elements that you're starting to formulate when you're already thinking ahead to how am I going to manage this patient? Yeah, sure. You know, I think the overall goal is to, to relieve the obstruction. So I have to prove that the kidney works. I need to prove that there's an indication to relieve the obstruction. So there's sometimes patients will be referred to me and they have a kidney that has like 3% function. And, you know, it doesn't make sense to do reconstruction at that point, or it's someone who's obstructed and they're otherwise asymptomatic and the kidney doesn't, doesn't really work. Those are reasons not to do it. Once I have a pretty solid indication, then it goes down into kind of that's a bolts of, of how I'm going to fix it, which is kind of a whole other, other discussion usually. Sure. So you've decided you're going to fix it. So a, a renal scan is, is 20% ish. I know it's kind of relative. Your, your cutoffs, is that still germane? Yeah. 20% is reasonable. Okay. And I totally agree with you that, you know, when to relieve the instruction and is it indicated, you know, I get a lot of kind of terminal cancer patients, oftentimes with non-urologic malignancies, and they're coming in with some incidental hydro and their kidney function's okay. And, you know, before I reflexively pop in a stent or a nephrostomy tube, I think it's worth having a kind of a goals of care discussion. And I think even in the benign world, what I'm hearing is that's how you feel as well. Absolutely. Okay. So, so you've decided that they need some relief of obstruction and either they're, let's say non-instrumented, no history of a nephrostomy tube or a stent. Is there a particular renal scan that you kind of go with? Yeah. You know, most time when we do a, a MAC3 renal scan with Lasix, that's kind of the test that will tell me some degree of function and the T1 half tells me some degree of obstruction. It's not mandated, you know, like someone who has a solitary kidney whose creatinine always goes up when a stent's removed or, or when a, you know, nephrostomy tube's capped, that doesn't make too much sense to me to do a renal scan in that setting or, or someone who has, you know, hydroureteral nephrosis after 
a previous reimplant and they get repeated pilo and they got good parenchyma on the kidney. I don't need necessarily a renal scan in those kind of settings, but most times I get a renal scan. Okay. So a renal scan, that's kind of your evaluation of function. And then what about to kind of delineate the anatomy? What comes next? Yeah. You know, a lot of it depends on the history and, you know, someone who's had a stone procedure in which there was a stone that had, that was proximal ureteral and uh, they had ureteroscopy and, and everything's located proximally. That's enough information to me. I'll have to say, because I offer kind of every type of reconstruction, I'm a little bit less fixated on the length of the stricture nor the location because I essentially prep the patient for reconstruction of the entire ureter just because I've seen many patients where they were diagnosed with a proximal stricture and then we find out they also have a distal stricture. And so I, I kind of do the same position every time. I, I have the same discussion. You could have primary anastomosis, buccal mucosa, appendix onlay, ileoureter, you know, as a possibility. And if the patient's accepting of all those options, it doesn't matter to me quite so much exactly what our stricture is two centimeters long or three centimeters. We have the techniques to fix it. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. And maybe I'll just push back a little bit that, you know, an endoureterotomy versus like an auto transplant, those are two fairly different affairs or an endoureterotomy versus an ileal interposition, for instance. And I mean, I, I totally get it. You know, obviously you're gonna have a sense of kind of what's going on and what may be required, but you're not going to be insistent on a retrograde pilogram to kind of get a sense of the location and the degree of the stricture, whether it's obliterative or not, do these kind of play in? You know, I think we've, there's been a fair number of reports where, so obliteration would make it a little bit more difficult to do. And it's, uh, the location obviously matters in terms of whether, for example, you're doing a re-implant or, you know, buccal mucosa ureteroplasty. I guess one hallmark about my practice is that like, given that I offer every option and to me, I don't, I don't really do auto transplant as a first technique. They will get either uh, a primary repair, primary anastomotic repair up to LO order. And it's uncommon. I don't think it's ever happened where I'm not able to do something of that ilk. That being said, I think that my practice is a little bit different than most because I, I'm, I'm kind of like the last urologist that many, many people will see. And they've already had previously endoscopic management or, you know, various other types of reconstructive procedures. So when a patient comes to see me, they're usually like, whatever you could do, just get it fixed. And I'm willing to do all those options I mentioned. I think for, you know, when, when I talked to my residents and fellows, I was like, you know, it is, it is a good idea, certainly to get antegrade and retrograde imaging to know a little bit more what you're getting into. I'll just say, honestly, I don't always do that just because I know I'm going to do one of those options I listed earlier. All right. So maybe to summarize, preferable, not mandatory to have an antegrade retrograde to kind of delineate the distance of the stricture. Is it obliterative, the location of it? And it may location wise, you know, anatomy, blood supply, it's something we hear about so much. I mean, does that actually impact what you do in your practice or is this kind of a 
historical interest amid ureters not well vascularized and you're a watershed area. You know, tell me about contemporary blood supply when it comes to the ureter. Yeah. So one of the philosophies I have is don't transect the ureter if you don't have to. And I think that's a bit of a paradigm shift from, from certainly what, what I was taught. And so it's because I, I do very few primary anastomoses of the ureter because if something's three centimeters long, I'm not going to worry about trying to mobilize the two ends and, and really bring it together. I'm going to incise on the ureter and do some kind of onlay, you know, placement of a graph or a flap. And so given that if I don't cut the ureter, some of those blood supplies, I think doesn't matter that much because I'm, I'm just making a decision on the ureter and patching it. Okay. So that's absolutely helpful. And, and I guess the same would probably apply in terms of, you know, in your specific practice. And maybe we could do this in kind of two ways, like a urologist or reconstructive urologist first line, and then maybe, you know, kind of coronary urologist, just so we have something for the whole breadth of our listenership. So the way I kind of think about it, going back to my days where I was a little bit more involved in reconstruction, you'd ideally, ideally like a renal scan, you know, assessment of function in retrograde pilogram, and then some assessment of bladder capacity. You know, if you're going to be ultimately doing a psoas hitch or a bar, a flap, things along those lines, is that still reasonable for like kind of first line assessment? Absolutely. I, I think those are definitely all the correct test question answers to do noise function. And if you're going to do anything that you can do any kind of work in the bladder, having some assessment, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a systogram. I think, you know, the history of a patient who, you know, urinates every six hours and otherwise normal kidney function, you, you know, they, they're going to have a reasonable bladder capacity. It's kind of the radiated, the diabetic, the people who have BPH symptoms already. That's where having some kind of formal measurement is more useful. Okay. And then if they have a stent in, do you ideally like to take the stent out and let things kind of mature prior to embarking on your reconstruction? I do. It's a little tough to do sometimes because of, you know, logistically, it's hard to, you know, if someone gets septic every time you pull the stent and they have a UVJ stricture that you know you're going to do a reimplant, it's, everything's going to reach very easily. You know, it's hard to press someone to pull the stent and get a nephrostomy tube or pull the stent and potentially get septic in the, the week that you're waiting for the, the edema to go down. If it's upper track and I'm really weighing in, this is, could be a primary anastomosis, could be a graft of some sort, then I will push for a nephrostomy to be placed. We don't already have one. And then removing the stent to give the ureter some rest. Yeah, I always find patients kind of look at you like you're crazy when it comes to let's pull out the stent. Let's put it in a frosty tube, then pull out the stent, then let things mature. And, you know, in my practice, it's usually not much primary reconstruction. It's more repaired nail fibrosis after a couple of other folks have had a crack at it, et cetera. But it's a tough sell. So I totally appreciate that. But I do think it's nice to get that ureteral rest. And, you know, if a retrograde would, would be valuable. I just certainly think that, as you mentioned, doing it, doing it at the time of surgery, time of planned reconstructive surgery, instead of an additional trip to the OR, just make sure the patient knows that, you know, the possibilities are full spectrum. 
Okay. So, you know, when I think about Eureka Reconstruction and, and back to like M&M days, it kind of seemed like it was just like laundry list of like do nothing, chronic stent, chronic nephrostomy tube, endoureterotomy, trans-UU, primary UU, reimplant, so it's hitch, bar flap, interposition. And, you know, it kind of went on and on. You kind of like said all these things and like two thirds of them were things that like nobody had ever done. Let's maybe talk about like, you know, actual real world reconstruction now, perhaps focusing to give it some structure, proximal mid and then, and then distal ureter. Does that sound okay? Yeah, sure. So first off, endoscopic management, does that have a place in your practice at all? I think it does for the very, very short, you know, structure where it's, it's kind of like a, the mucosa is just a little bit grown in. I think it is reasonable to do a, like a dilation, like a U laser ureterotomy. I would say that it's pretty rare in my practice. And most often it actually occurs in the setting of, you know, after I've already done some other reconstruction and like the, the onlay I've done, there's just a little bit of cross healing where the one end of the anastomosis is a little bit narrow. And that's where, where I may do something like that. I would say that if you have a ureteral stricture that's anything close to a centimeter or longer, the chance of it being successful endoscopically is pretty, pretty rare. Yeah, I, I, I kind of generally limit it to post-treatment. You know, you've done your primary intervention, whether that's a ureteral new, you know, revision of a uteroenteric anastomosis, or you've done like a disureterectomy reimplant and something pops up, but not my, not my primary affair. So is two centimeters kind of your cutoff for a primary UU? I heard you mention that earlier in the proximal ureter, mid ureter. It really depends on how the tissue comes together. You know, it's, I, I think that two centimeters in someone who's radiated and fibrotic and there's a, you know, maybe like a infected phlegma next to it with a drain, you know, that's different than two centimeters after say, you know, a, like an impacted stone that's been removed and there was just a little bit of like inappropriate healing. And so I think it's hard to give these kind of strict measures and obviously not everybody has the same length of ureter nor the same height. And so I think if it's longer than two centimeters, for sure, I would do something else. But even less than two centimeters, it really depends on the quality of tissue uh, to see if a primary anastomosis would be possible. All right, I'm getting ahead of myself. So actually, I would have to imagine that in your practice, many people come in with fairly, let me call it a hostile abdomen. And you're counseling them on, you know, we're going to do something to fix your ureteral stricture. Are there absolute indications for open surgery in your hands? No, there isn't. I, I mean, I guess the absolute indication is that I make a small incision with the robot and I cannot progress, but there's no way of knowing that prior to starting robotically. All right. So let's, let's talk about access. I don't want to make any assumptions here. I know you're a big single port guy, but you know, for me, my practice is if they're a virginal abdomen, varus needle pop in, you know, I, I haven't found the civil port to be a perfect option for all the operations I've done, do. So I kind of stick to the XI, but I'll, I'll generally insulate it at the, um, umbilicus. If they're virginal, put in an eight millimeter camera, take a look around and get the rest of my ports in rock and roll. If they've had extensive previous surgery, I wouldn't say that that precludes them. It's very rare that I'll say, Hey, I don't think it's safe to offer you a robotic operation. 
And I'll generally move away from the bulk of their incisions or even if they had an Appy or a Coley or whatever, pick for like the opposite quadrant, for instance, and uh, try once with a varus needle. If that's not uh, sufficient, try to Hassan my way in, pop in a trocar, insufflate, get in trocars, and it's painful. I always do this part of the case. Don't let the residents do it. You know, I think the license of adhesions can be hectic. And then mostly you can find your way in and, you know, make it happen. And then I have had some cases where I open, do a license of adhesions, get my bearings and actually close and pop in my robot and get on with it. Like if it was my dad, for instance, I'd rather have him like a robotic prostatectomy than like an open prostatectomy. So like kind of in that vein, can you tell me a little bit about what you do to get in? Yeah. So most of my practice is using the SP. I'm almost 700 cases or so of the SP as of, you know, March of 2022. And that involves a 2.5 centimeter incision on the skin. And what I will frequently do is that I will make a incision on the fascia. If there, I'll move the muscle aside and I won't actually even dissect into the peritoneal cavity before putting in my port. It's just one port. And the rest of the dissection, like I will make incisions into the peritoneum I will free up whatever bowel that's attached to it and, and often the gas will help and I will dissect my way into the abdomen. Typically it's not at, it won't be at the incision, like a previous incision. Someone has like a midline laparotomy, I'll, I'll do left of a quadrant or something and essentially dissect my way into the peritoneal cavity with the uh, SP robot and then do all the lysis adhesions there that's needed. Oftentimes actually, I find that I don't have to do any lysis adhesions because I'm going to go for the kidney, which is a retroperitoneal structure, and all the adhesions are at the midline. I just leave them up. Um, the only reason really to take them down is if I'm doing a, like an ileal ureter. The other thing I would do is if I'm sure it's a proximal ureteral stricture, I would do a retroperitoneal approach from the flank with the SP, which very similarly dissect in, get into the fat, and I avoid, you know, any previous adhesions, adhesions from, you know, their, their uh, intraperitoneal surgery in the past. Yeah, I like it. I mean, basically, it's like a Hassan technique with your robot. Yes. Okay, fantastic. And I mean, of course, I think the retroperitoneal option for a variety of reasons, but including like a multiple reoperated abdomen makes, makes a lot of sense. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Since I had my son, paying down my med school debt has become my top priority. I remember holding him in my arms for the first time, looking into his beautiful little face, and just wanting the best future for him. With the Laurel Road Student Loan Cashback Card, my regular purchases earn me 2% cashback when I use it to pay down my student loans, which helps me reach my goals faster and plan for my family's future. Laurel Road for Doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash doctor checking for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA member FDIC. Now, back to the show. All right, so so you're in safely. You've kind of, and thousand percent agree, you know, kind of a perinephric phlegmon, eight nephrostomy tubes. Like, you know, I'm guessing you're, like there's no role for like a nephropexy in that type of patient. You know, it's not going to move. But maybe again, just kind of keeping it to the upper ureter. So you say it's a moderate two to three centimeter stricture. What are kind of the whole breadth of options that you're kind of considering here? You know, things to to make this happen? Like maybe it does nephropexy, is that a part of your armamentarium at all? It is, although I would only really do it if 
the stricture is obliterative. And so I think what typically happens is that while we're getting access, usually I do concurrent retrograde or antegrade ureteroscopy while, you know, things are getting docked. And so if I could get, let, let's say you have the stricture and I'll put in a ureteroscope. I always position my patients in to have access to the lower tract while doing robotic surgery. And so if the patient has a, a penis, they, they, it's just kind of standard flank. If they don't, then I'll put the legs apart a little bit and just use a flexible scope. And I'll put a ureteroscope up the uh, ureter that I'm working on and try to pass a, a wire all the way up. If I could get a wire all the way up to the kidney, then I know that this is going to be an onlay of some sort. And so I don't really need to mobilize the kidney to, to do any kind of primary anastomosis. So I think the nephropexy for me really only has its use if it's a true obliteration and I'm not doing something like ileoureter. And do you shoot a retrograde with ICG or anything along those lines when you're doing your initial ureteroscopy? I don't use ICG in the ureter if I'm able to get a ureteroscope up. The reason being is that if you give ICG in the ureter, which, you know, it is, is a off-label indication, what can happen is that once you cut into the ureter, then everything, the retroperitoneum is, you know, staying green. And I prefer to give intravascular ICG to look for the blood supply of the ureter once I've brought everything together. And so I, I want to save it. So usually I just use a ureteroscope and the white light will fluoresce in that, uh, those wavelengths. Okay, cool. So you're giving standard IV ICG to kind of look at blood supply. And I guess that's going to be kind of a qualitative, you do this enough, you get a sense of, oh my gosh, is that completely devascularized or is this, is this stretch you're going to make it? And if you're doing it retrograde, if that were to arise, um, do you typically dilute it or how does that work? Yeah. So ICG comes usually in 10 mic, you know, that's reconstituting about 25 cc's of sterile water. And I'll inject about five cc's into the ureter. And it takes a good, you know, 30 minutes or longer for it to really get into the ureter so you could see it. So don't expect to like inject it and see it right away. And uh, you can inject it into the nephrostomy tube or you can inject it into a uh, ureteral catheter if you decide to do that. Okay, good. So we've got in, we've gotten access. So your first move is typically ureteroscopy and passive wire that gives you a flavor for obliterated or not. Sounds like, at least in some component of the cases, you have some delineation of the anatomy, but there's ways to do that either with an antegrade, retrograde on, on table or something along those lines. So can you maybe just kind of walk through your options? So primary UU, would be an option. And that sounds like it would be for highly select cases, near virginal, favorable anatomy, good mobility, tissue quality is good. Is that fair? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Then let's say primary UU is not working or it doesn't seem to be a good option. What's your kind of next go-to option? Yeah. So, you know, usually I'll just drive the ureteroscope up and where it meets the point of obstruction, I would make a longitudinal incision over it and I'll just keep pushing the scope up. So, so that's how I measure the length of the stricture. And then 
uh, I don't dissect out the rest of the ureter. I don't devascularize it. It's you, you just have a white incision on the uh, anterior side of the ureter. And if it's long, so like if things look like it's not going to be primary UU, then it really, for me, it depends on if this is going to be a left-sided problem or a right side. If it's left, I typically go to buccal mucosa ureteroplasty, taking harvesting buccal mucosa and just doing a onlay onto the ureter and then usually sewing omentum or mesenteric fat to, to help perfuse the graft. On the right side, I frequently do a appendiceal onlay with essentially the same technique, just incising the anti-mesenteric side of the appendix and, and sewing it onto the ureter. Yeah, that's nice. I mean, I would certainly say when I kind of came through the ranks as a trainee, those would not be considered standard options. So this is just going to be kind of standard buckle graft. And I mean, I'm assuming that most urologic reconstructions are hopefully going to get some exposure to this during fellowship. I personally wouldn't feel comfortable harvesting buckle. You know, I saw Al Mori do it a million times and, you know, did it with the fellows, but I don't know that I'd put that squarely in my wheelhouse, but this is going to be identify stints and stocks, all that kind of good stuff, stay out of harm's way and defat it, get it prepped. And that's it. And, and just to be clear, the, the mucosa side goes on the intraluminal side. Yes. Yeah. And, and you don't need a lot of graft. You know, the ureter is very small. So a one centimeter wide graft is plenty for the ureter. So it's, it's I, I would say, less of a ordeal than it is for urethroplasty. Yeah, that's fantastic. And on the right-hand side, so you're basically using like a stapler, stapling out your appendix, cutting out your staple line, cutting out the tip, detubularizing it, sewing it on there, rock and roll. That's right. Yeah, sounds pretty good. Sounds tempting. The The right side actually sounds a lot more in my wheelhouse, you know, than perhaps getting into the mouth. All right, that's fantastic, Lee. And I mean, is it safe to say that, you know, there's really no kind of length requirements, as it were? on, um, you know, as long as you're able to kind of incise and kind of cut to healthy tissue. So at some point it's gonna, you know, like the risk of having a narrowing is proportional to the length of the stricture. So I've done buckle graft up to, you know, about 10 centimeters or so, at which point, you know, you're kind of on the other side of the iliacs and you might as well, like, uh, a bowiner's precision makes, makes sense at that point. And, and the, uh, the appendix, you know, is, is similarly limited to max of maybe 10 centimeters. And so like we're, what we're really talking about is kind of like a two to six centimeter stricture that, that we're fixing. Things that are much longer than that, you know, there's, there's going to be some other options. Okay. So we talked about, you know, kind of ileal interpositions as your, as your kind of definitive long stricture option. Let's talk a little bit about that, if you don't mind. Walk us through technically how you accomplished that one. Sure. So I've always been taught in, in training that, you know, you take a segment and you harvest it, you do the bioanastomosis, and then you do the anastomosis one to the size of the bladder, one size of the ureter. I've broken those rules a little bit because I find that sometimes it's a little hard to tell how long of a segment you need. And so my first move is once I know for sure that this is a ileal ureter, so all the indications you've mentioned, 
what I will do is I still won't really transect the ureter. I'll just make a, a longitudinal ureterotomy. You know, usually it's by like the renal pelvis. If it's for benign indication, uh, I say that there's no reason to like kind of dissect the ureter. If it's, you know, fibrosed and under the vena cava, you know, just kind of leave it where it is. And I'll make an incision on it on the uh, ureter side. I'll find a appropriate loop of bowel. So one that is a sufficient distance from the cecal valve and it reaches easily to the ureter. And then I will make a enterotomy and just do the anastomosis of one side of the bowel to the ureter first. Then I have like that a ureter, that uh, bowel segment fixed. I march down, you know, that bowel and until I get to the bladder, I make another incision enterotomy. And then now I've, I've have the rest of bowel that I could isolate and do an astomosis. I will frequently do a discard limb. Uh, and so what that means is that a segment of bowel five to 10 centimeters, that is not going to be part of the urinary tract. And I excise it right off the mesentery. And what that does is that it spaces the, my bowel anastomosis further away from the, the, ure, the ureteral anastomosis and potentially reduce the risk for some kind of urinary to small bowel fistula. I do my anastomosis, you know, however it comes together, a side to side functional end to end, if it comes together nicely, otherwise I'll do uh, what's called a isoperistaltic anastomosis of the bowel, where we, we kind of line up the two bowel segments in isoperistaltic fashion, and then you do kind of a hand-sewn anastomosis or robot-sewn anastomosis. Once that's done, then I will connect the other end to the bladder. And, and that's, that's really it. Yeah. I mean, it kind of intuitively makes sense that your delicate anastomoses are going to be your, your urothelium to bladder. That's where your variable variability is going to be. And to kind of have your, your reconstruction done and then isolate your bowel so that you can get your your GI tract back in continuity. I like that. So maybe for the sake of completeness, you know, for upper tract, trans you use, is that something that you've ever had to do? I have had to do it, but it's such an unusual case that like, I'm not sure that that's even worth considering as a primary option. Like I would say that, you know, unless the patient has like short gut. There's really not much of a role for a trans UU. And you could really have a complication that causes both sides to fail. And, you know, I, I would say that it's, you know, one of the principles of reconstructive surgery is, you know, always have a lifeboat. You know, you want to have something that will bail you out. And to make the leap to a trans UU, you could screw up both sides. And so I, I would not do that first line. It would be a very, very unusual setting. Fantastic. And would you say that the kind of general approaches and principle that you've described for the proximal ureter apply to the mid ureter as well? I would. I mean, I guess the one thing is that there are some patients where they have like a big enough bladder capacity where a Berardi flap makes more sense than some of the options I've talked about in the mid ureter. And sometimes there's situations where, for example, someone has a surgery of their sigmoid colon 
and there's a very taut colonic anastomosis. And during that side, the left mid ureter is injured. That's not like a great option for doing ileal ureter because you need to, you know, try to tunnel the mesentery under a taut colonic anastomosis it is, is a little bit difficult. And oftentimes the injury is very, very close to the vessels, the iliac vessels. And so doing like a buckle graft over the vessels, you know, if there's any kind of urine leak, you're really worrying uh, quite a bit about when you come back, how are you going to free all this up? Are you going to get into the vein? And if someone has a good bladder capacity, I think that's where it makes sense to do a, a Ferrari flap. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, certainly have seen combination boy flap. So as hitches get fairly proximal, there's certainly been picture after picture. We can see the bladder really reach all the way up to the renal pelvis. And, you know, I think when I think about the distal ureter, you're, you're kind of thinking, you know, ureteroneocystotomy, Bawari flap, psoas hitch. Is that about your thought process as well? You know, one thing that I've been doing and, and you know, we, we've published on this and it's probably, you know, I think longer time will, will tell is, is I've been doing a non-transecting re-implant and that's where instead of dissecting the distal ureter out of the pelvis and then connect to the dome, I make a vertical, you know, a longitudinal incision on the, on the ureter right at the area where things are strictured. And then I just drop the bladder onto it. You know, we make a corresponding vertical cut on the backside of the bladder, and then we sew the edges together. The reason I've been doing that is the blood supply of the ureter comes from inferiorly. And if I mobilize the ureter to lift it up, I've cut all those blood vessels. And why did this patient have a stricture? In my practice, it's usually because they've been radiated. And, you know, somebody's been radiated. I want to touch that tissue as little as possible because I know that anything I mobilize, they're going to get more ischemic. And so I've been doing a lot of that as opposed to the traditional ureteroneocystotomy. Yeah. I at least came across some of your initial reports and used that technique. It was a young African-American male who had some kind of upper and lower tract pathology. I shared the patient with Peggy Pearl. And uh, he also had a history of stones. And I did that for one of his sides, he had bilateral strictures with the idea being that if you were to develop stones down the way, then it also becomes a little bit more, I think, ergonomic to perform uteroscopy than that kind of, I can envision the paper in urology with the nice stent coming around. Uh, so I think that's a, that's a really nice point. And I, I think some of the things we talked about with bladder capacity earlier kind of makes sense. So if you're doing a psoas hitch, are you typically taking the contralateral pedicle? No. You know, I'm not sure how much length you get from the, taking the contralateral pedicle because the contralateral pedicle is very, very close to the contralateral ureter. And, you know, like if you do some of those maneuvers that's classically described, to me, I think the maximal distance something could get, it would be like, two centimeters and you're at risk for devascularizing, you know, half the blood. And so to me, I think the risk outweighs the benefit. I'll much rather mobilize something, do a Borari flap, you know, use a little bit more of the bladder, the detrusor to get closer to where, where I'm reconstructing than taking the contralateral pedicle. 
And do you tech when you do your SOAS hitches or are you using VLOC, PDS? What do you use to tech your, your bladder up? I usually use VLOC or Stratifix, some kind of absorbable barb suture. I'll have to say, I don't do a ton of true SOAS hitches. The reason being is that, you know, most of the time, the ureter is going to be medial to the psoas. And I'm doing my anastomosis to the ureter with minimal mobilization. If I tack the bladder laterally to the psoas, I've actually pulled it on a different vector than my anastomosis. And so what I'll do instead is that I'll find some patroneum, maybe a little bit lower down and secure the bladder to that. But I, I don't do a lot of true, you know, find it. So it's tendon, hitch it up because that's usually about three centimeters lateral to where the ureter actually is. And putting maximal tension on that spot doesn't help me reach the, uh, my anastomosis. Yeah. I think it's an excellent point. I mean, for me, it's oftentimes I'm trying to get that bladder up as high as possible and I generally won't hitch it necessarily right where the ureteroneocystotomy is going to be, it's going to be more just to kind of keep it up, keep it off the tension so that tension's not on the fresh anastomosis. But I think it's a, it's an excellent point. And I'll oftentimes try to take a good bit of the peritoneum off of the bladder. I think that gives you more length than necessarily taking the contralateral pedicle. And then at the conclusion, so all of these are stented, I trust, all your repairs? No. <laughs> so, so that's, you know, I, I think stents to me, you know, stents is a good way to, to kind of make you sleep better. I'm not sure that objectively there's evidence that it, it helps in every case. So if I'm afraid that there will be some cross healing, as in like the suture line will heal to the other side, then I leave a stent. So I routinely leave a stent for buccal mucosa, urinoplasty, because I'm, I'm kind of ensuring that it heals in like a tubular shape. But if someone has like an ill ureter where the lumen is already two centimeters and, you know, we don't stent bowel anastomoses, right? You know, maybe we should, but maybe, uh, yeah. Yeah, maybe we should, but you know, to me, it's, it's always difficult to pass it all the way around and then it can migrate up and it's hard to pull out. So I don't routinely stent ill ureters and for the non-transecting re-implant I've described, well, I'm doing kind of a marsupialization of the ureter into the bladder and the anastomosis is a good two centimeter wide. I don't always stent that just because it's, it seems like it's wide open and the bladder itself pulls it open. And so I would say, obviously we got to study this further. I know for ureteral enteric anastomosis, Sometimes I'll put a stent in, sometimes I won't. So it's not, not always. Yeah, I can appreciate that. I mean, obviously when you do a urinary reconstruction, there's a caliber of the ureter, there's a quality of the ureter, there's the, you know, there's all these kind of variables that are hard to kind of quantify, but you get a sense of, is this like a chip shot, healthy ureter, wide, wide anastomosis versus something less. Okay, I, I need to stop assuming, but what about drains? Does everybody get a drain? Some of them. <laughs> you know, I, I think that's a, uh, it depends a little bit on how good I think the connection is. I try to test all my anastomosis in the OR to assess if it's watertight. And so if it's a watertight anastomosis and 
you know, many of, of the patients that I, that I do reconstructive surgery are going home the same day. And so if I leave a drain in, it's, you know, they, they'll have to go home with it and then come back the following week or something to pull it and then, but they're not quite ready for imaging yet or, or whatever. And so, and a lot of patients, you know, do travel quite far. So I would say for many simple reconstructions, I, I won't put a, a drain in, assuming they have a watertight anastomosis in the OR. And are you testing these with like, say like retrograde pilograms or cystograms or using, uh, you know, indigo carmine, dilute, walk us through some of your common ways of testing these anastomoses. So intraoptively, if it's, you know, a reimplant, uh, I'll retrograde fill the bladder up. If it's a, um, buccal ureteroplasty, you know, frequently I have actually the ureteroscope in the ureter while I'm sewing things up. And so I'll just turn the fluid on the ureteroscope and I'll, I'll look as I'm pulling it back. And if there's any leaks, I'll, I'll repair that. Similarly, an alo ureter, there's usually a bladder anastomosis. There's always a bladder anastomosis. And I just retrograde fill the bladder and I can see the bowel distend. Post-operatively, if I did like a Brouillardi flap, and many of the patients I do um, have been radiated, and I, I did a Brouillardi flap on that, I will get a cystogram to ensure that things are healed before taking out the Foley catheter. For buccal mucosa ureteroplasty, I no longer do any kind of imaging when I take the stent out. I leave the stent in for about three weeks and then I just pull it. And I think that really comes out of my own urethroplasty practice where I also don't do any post-operative imaging. And in the thousand that I've done, you know, the, the number of actual complications arising from that practice has, has been minimal. And so given the same principles for upper track, I just take the stent out after uh, three weeks. Okay. So a uh, couple quick questions. Preoperative urine cultures, do everybody get them? No, or rather, I don't feel like you could ever achieve a truly negative urine culture in someone who has some kind of external tube, which most of these patients have, you know, like most of my patients have a nephrostomy tube or a stent. The nephrostomy ones, I, I really don't think I could truly clear them. And so frequently we'll get a urine culture, uh, I'll put them on culture specific antibiotics, but it's not routine that I, I require a negative culture before doing surgery. And then afterwards your operation's done. Tell us a little bit about your general antibiotic management. You know, it depends a little bit on the um, kind of procedure, but most time, you know, if they're, they're on preoperative antibiotics for a week, they just finish that oral course because they're, they're going home the same day. If it's uh, a bowel anastomosis, my standard protocol is, is uh, 24 hours of second generation cephalosporins, you know, for both cystectomies and, and ileureters. And that's really it. You know, I, I feel like antibiotics are very, very helpful when it's, they're indicated, but overuse of antibiotics is one of the banes of medical practice. And, and I don't routinely put people on prophylactic antibiotics. And then nephrostomy tubes, if you're happy with the way things went, do you take them out at the end of the case or leave them in for a bit? Frequently, I will cap the nephrostomy tube if it's like a patient that has traveled a long distance to see me because the last thing I want is for the, the referring urologist to get a phone call a couple of weeks out after surgery and have to come back in to put a stent back or something. That's poor 
customer service on my part. And so I will leave the frost to capped and tell the patient that if you have a fever, just uncapping the frost tube first. If it's some kind of obstructive problem, then that's going to de-obstruct you right away and then let me know. And that should ideally prevent, uh, you know, re-emission and, and additional procedures. So you mentioned testing your, your anastomoses intraoperatively. If they've got catheters in and drains, do you have any kind of algorithm for catheter removal, assess drain before drain removal or not really? Not really. I mean, I mean, it's, it's hard to leave drains in for, you know, you do a Brari flap on, or I, I do a Brari flap on a radiated patient. They have a catheter in for about two weeks, but they went home the same day. So I don't usually see leaks that the drain would pick up during those two weeks. And especially if I'm getting a cystogram anyway. And so I'll, I'll just either not have a drain or, or take it out very early. Yeah, this is great, Lee. I mean, I love the way that you're, and I know you enough to know that you're kind of challenging dogma every step of the way. And I, I love it. Even just the things that I kind of learned as a resident, which rapidly is becoming longer and longer ago, but you know, hats off to what you've been able to do. You know, I think introducing a, a fairly paradigm shifting technique that is, I think, disseminable. I think that's always one of the challenges. Like if there's like one person in the history of humanity can do it, then you kind of wonder about it a bit, but you know, my sense is that, you know, for instance, buckle ureteroplasty has taken off and there's been some multi-institutional reviews that have been published and whatnot. And really just kind of talking about this, you know, same day discharges, judicious use of antibiotics. I think it probably goes without saying that, you know, you're using a non-opioid backbone for whatever you're doing. I think, you know, really kind of seeing you, you push the field has been uh, a treat to watch um, from kind of my cancer perspective. And with that, are there any any kind of parting thoughts you'd like to leave the uh, listenership with when it comes to upper tract reconstruction or more in general? Sure. You, you know, I, I think when I started in urology, upper tract reconstruction was something that people really didn't want to do. And it was because all those problems we've talked about where it was hard to localize the stricture, you weren't sure what to do, the options were... You know, it wasn't like a reconstructive ladder. You could have done a, a UU or an auto transplant. There wasn't anything in between. And I think I would counsel the listener that we really have many, many options for reconstruction of the ureter. And this isn't something where a patient gets a stent and has a change every, you know, three months, six months for the rest of their lives. We could do a two-hour outpatient operation and cure the problem. And, and I think the patients are going to be a lot happier when, when they know that as opposed to having a, uh, a chronic disease for, for a lifetime. Yeah, that's fantastic, Lee. Well, um, with that again, uh, Lee Zhao from NYU. And you know, thanks again for your time. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. 
with support from Ishan Sangwan and Medavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.